Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. again for joining us on the Explaining History podcast and the thing I want to talk about today are Hitler's motivations for waging war in the Mediterranean um, considering the fact that it was something that Hitler had in 1939 no intention of doing. The Mediterranean theatre and particularly North Africa absorb vital resources in terms of manpower, armour air power, naval strength, and most critically, fuel. Hitler's objectives in the Mediterranean were highly ambiguous and unclear, and certainly didn't fall into the wider strategic vision that he uh, pursued. Also, at moments where it might have uh, fitted in with the wider strategic vision that uh, Hitler had envisaged, i.e. perhaps a, a dash for Arabia, Um, and the seizure of the Middle Eastern oil wells, which would have meant that Hitler wouldn't have had to get get bogged down in southern Russia. Then Hitler actually ignores this advice. Despite the fact that there were considerable successes for the Germans in North Africa and the Mediterranean, the fact is that the entire um, diversion into this theatre is uh, really a, a huge strategic blunder, Uh, We've talked a lot recently about the strategic blunders that happen over um, the invasion, the planned invasion of Great Britain, and what a a diversion, a sideshow, and a waste of time that basically was for Hitler. But I would argue that the Mediterranean is is yet a bigger one. The development of an empire in the Mediterranean on its north and southern shores was obviously an Italian ambition. Mare Nostrum, our lake. Uh, was what the uh, Mediterranean was referred to in fascist terms. And of course Mussolini sought to recreate roughly uh, the boundaries and contours of the uh, Roman Empire. Fascisms in general, wherever you go, tend to look back to antiquity or um, the Middle Ages for examples of national greatness and glory and then attempt to project those into uh, the modern era, into the present, in order to give a roadmap as to national rejuvenation, to uh, kind of come back from the nation's problems, which are obviously caused by 
outsiders and troublemakers and internal subversives. However, following the fall of France, the decision of Mussolini first to commit forces to the Balkans and to North Africa gave Churchill the opportunity to engage the Axis in battle, knowing that the uh, European theatre was closed to the British for a considerable length of time. Why was this important? Why was it important that uh, Churchill fight somewhere? Because he needed to present to the British public the idea that Britain was indeed fighting on. It was very difficult to show the results of Britain's fledgling air war over Germany, and it was very difficult to present to the British people successes at sea, uh, and they were pretty thin on the ground in both cases. But victories in North Africa were much more tangible, and the evidence that it, um, the Axis was being uh, fought and engaged and defeated in North Africa was much more tangible too. There is an interesting parallel between the Allied and the Axis forces. Mussolini's actions in the Mediterranean drew in a reluctant Hitler. The actions and the plans of Churchill in the Mediterranean also drew in a reluctant America. The view that the American chiefs of staff had from 1942 onwards was that the sooner a cross-channel invasion and a titanic head-on attack with the German army could be had, so much the better. The British, who were probably right on this score, suggested that this was likely to be defeated and was uh, too early in the, the war to be considered, and a long period of planning had to be thought through uh, instead. The kind of war that Britain had traditionally fought was uh, a war at the periphery, a head-on assault something the, the British rarely tended to do. And the uh, previous uh, wars from the 18th and the 19th century uh, showed this clearly, particularly the, the Napoleonic Wars. And then the, in the First World War, the uh, tendency of Churchill was to try to fight a war at the periphery as well, such as his rather ill-fated uh, Dardanelles campaign. Mussolini had exhausted himself in North Africa and in Spain in the invasion of Abyssinia and the support that he gave to uh, Franco during the Spanish Civil War. The period in which the British and the French and the Germans were busy rearming, Mussolini squandered uh, on his rather pointless invasion of Abyssinia in order to bolster national pride and to uh, undo defeats in the late 1890s at the hands of uh, the Ethiopians. As a result, by 1940, when Mussolini sees the fall of France and decides that this is his cue to seize uh, territories uh, in North Africa, he goes to war fatally underprepared. When the British are finished fighting Mussolini and inflicting crushing defeats on him, fighting the uh, Africa Corps is an entirely different proposition and one which the British grapple with unsuccessfully for the best part of two and a half years. And the reality is that Italy is a re relatively poor country. 
Italy cannot commit the kinds of wealth uh, to arms manufacture that Britain can. And then when Britain is no longer able to pour its resources into the war, it relies on the resources of the United States. So the British were always going to be able to outmatch uh, the Italian army in North Africa, but especially when Mussolini made basic errors such as not sending enough motorised transport for his men and relying on vast amounts of, of manpower across a desert in which it's virtually impossible to march. However, the threat that uh, Mussolini posed in North Africa um, in, from the Italian colony in Libya towards Egypt was a serious one. If a large Italian force quickly swept across Egypt, taking the British unawares and seized the canal zone, it would sever Britain from its empire. The loss of the Suez Canal would be a signal to Japan to seize uh, the British colonies and other European colonies in Asia as quickly as possible before British uh, Royal Naval reinforcements were able to arrive. The then head of the British Army, General Sir John Dill, wanted to send uh, British troops to Asia as quickly as possible, every man that could be spared, to bolster imperial defences in India, Malaya, Singapore and Burma. Churchill um, was not pleased with this idea and thought that the battle should be brought to the enemy wherever possible even if those battles were of little strategic value. Uh, Churchill said, well, it can't be Europe, so then it must be Africa. General Sir Archibald Wavell, whom Churchill loathed, and yet who was quite an effective commander, was uh, given some of the best remaining hardware after the fall of France, uh, vital tanks that could possibly have been used in other theatres, perhaps even in the defence of Great Britain, one might humbly submit, were sent to Wavell, who is now the Commander-in-Chief of uh, the British Middle Eastern Theatre, uh, in the summer of 1940. And other measures were employed in order to protect Britain's position in um, the Mediterranean, particularly the defence of Gibraltar. It was strongly suspected that the Spanish dictator, Franco, would find some means of aiding Hitler to seize Gibraltar and thus seal off the Mediterranean. The reason why that didn't happen really relates to a meeting uh, in the Pyrenees in Hitler's train carriage between Franco and Hitler, one where Franco asked for vast amounts of North African territory, much of it belonging to Vichy France, and uh, others earmarked from Mussolini uh, in order for uh, participation in this fairly minor operation. Mr. Hitler uh, was left shaking his head, saying, well, you know, the man is a fool, he wants everything for doing nothing, and I will have to uh, offend, anger and disappoint Mussolini and Vichy France, two more, far more powerful players as far as um, Hitler was concerned in order for Franco sort of wetting his toe in the war. The fact that Franco survived till the 1970s tells you quite a lot about his um, acumen as a fascist leader in staying well out of the war. 
he had secured everything he wished to and managed to conquer Spain with it. Immense, um, immense bloodletting. And unlike Mussolini or Hitler, did not really have any kind of irredentist views or um, plans for Lebensraum. The fact that Gibraltar and also Malta didn't fall into enemy hands is one of the Britain's saving graces in the Mediterranean. The ability to resupply ships and to cut the distance of supply lines by uh, stopovers in the, on these islands, which is precisely why Britain had them in the first place, um, was of massive strategic value. Also, flying from Gibraltar and flying from Malta were the RAF, which covered Britain's ships, which were sadly lacking air cover of their own. There were insufficient aircraft carriers. Um, Admiral Cunningham of the Mediterranean fleet observed this one to his great concern in 1940. But by 1942-43, still there is a, a very relatively weak air cover over Britain's ships in the Mediterranean. The fact that uh, British shipping, the Royal Navy in general, in the Mediterranean was quite an effective and powerful fighting force, inflicting several serious uh, wounds on Axis uh, naval forces without the sufficient air cover it deserved, um, is a, a quite a testament to the power of the Royal Navy and the, the, the skill of its commanders. Britain's desert armies were quite a Spartan affair. They were there were a small number of divisions. The bulk of the uh, British army was back home in Great Britain following the evacuation at Dunkirk. And Max Hastings has a rather magnificent way of putting their significance. The clashes between desert armies were little more significant in determining the outcome of global conflict than the tournaments between bands of French and English knights, which proved entree acts during the Hundred Years' War. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. But the North African contest caught the imagination of the Western world and achieved immense symbolic significance in the minds of British people. 
there are numerous anecdotes of British soldiers and tank crews in North Africa who said that the war was uh, 90% boredom, 10% terror, and that battles, uh, tank battles in North Africa uh, were kind of things that happened to other people, that you could sort of see uh, the puff of gun smoke in the distance somewhere, um, and uh, there were nothing, you know, there were large expanses where fighting didn't happen. So this is a curious theatre of combat. It is symbolic combat. It is war that is fought for the sake of war being fought, for the appearance of war being fought, for the, the spectacle of it, in order mainly to keep morale on the home front high and to give the impression on the home front that the sacrifices of war really are being shared by um, men at the front and that fighting on their behalf is going on, even if it is of relatively little consequence. The other curious thing to note about the Desert War in North Africa is that it happens over a thin strip of land between the Mediterranean coast and the beginnings of the impassable desert itself. This was normally 40 to 50 miles wide, and if you look at the Battle of El Alamein, um, on one side is the Mediterranean, and on the other are the deep and shifting sands of the Katara Depression, which was uh, pretty much unnavigable by uh, tanks and other forms of armour and mechanised transport. The main factors that came into play in the kind of the seesaw campaigns that saw the British and on one side and the Italians and Germans on the other pushed back and forth were fuel uh, and supply lines. The longer a the more successful a general became, particularly in the case of Rommel um, by um, mid nineteen forty two, um, the more vulnerable the supply lines became, the more overstretched. When supply lines were short, when the British were pushed back to um, the uh, borders of Egypt and the supply lines between the front line and the Nile Delta were uh, limited, uh, the British tend to do their best fighting. When the Axis were close to their base in Tripoli, again, they tended to do their best fighting. Perhaps the most curious feature of the North African campaign is that none of the actual indigenous inhabitants of North Africa, Algerians, Libyans, Moroccans and Egyptians, fought in any major capacity for either side. Here were two sets of imperial powers uh, slugging it out in North Africa, um, ostensibly for the control of the Suez Canal, but as we have already discussed, for more obscure and uh, less well-defined reasons too. The British and the Germans had little emotional attachment to the landscape, the people or the culture, and weren't defending their own homelands. This is possibly why, whilst there were certainly uh, horrors uh, in fighting, it was no way near the kind of almost genocidal, well, actual genocidal brutality of the Russian front. Mussolini's main motivation for war in North Africa was based around the idea that he assumed the war by the summer of 1940 was over. He thought very quickly in the autumn of 1940 that territory had to be seized so that he could um, show his face at the peace conference. 
show what Italy's mighty achievements had been in the war, and then retain the territory that Italy had managed to seize. Mussolini's worldview was basically, and his view of the Italian people, was that the Italian people, whilst having been unified by 1870, were not really a people. They had not really been um, forged in the anvil of war and victory. The First World War was very unfortunate. Mussolini had campaigned for Italy to get into the First World War, and yet there was the terrible mutilated peace uh, at the Paris Peace Conference, where Italy didn't get the spoils of war that Italian fascists and nationalists, and even liberals, believed that she should have. Mussolini believed all this could be undone, and that the Italian people could be uh, made great through war. And here we have a, a peculiar feature of fascism, uh, that fascism looks to the, really the, the positives of militarism and the positives of sacrifice, uh, that it, the Italian people, through privation and struggle and muscular individualism, would become mighty and strong and cease being this kind of rather chaotic rabble that uh, Mussolini perceived them to be. And when we speak of the British in North Africa, of course it's not the British at all, it's the British Empire, soon to be joined by uh, the Allied forces from across Europe who are fighting in exile. The British contingent uh, in Egypt was a one division, which would be obviously the 7th Armoured Brigade, 7th Armoured Division, um, along with an Indian and New, Ve New Zealand division and two Australian divisions. The British would be eventually joined in uh, North Africa by South Africans, Poles, Czechs, uh, French and others. And the final victory over Axis powers in North Africa would really be a, a multinational, almost united nations effort. Most Egyptians were relatively sympathetic towards the Axis powers. This was partly as a result of having the British occupy the Canal Zone since 1882. Um, the British were not particularly good house guests, and later one of the motivations for Egyptian nationalists embracing uh, Colonel Nasser uh, during the Suez Crisis in 1956 was the uh, really uh, poor uh, relations between the British Army and local Egyptians, normally caused by the British Army's actions itself. Seventy years of British control over the canal and over Egypt itself, uh, Egypt being notionally an independent sovereign state under its king, uh, King Farouk, but really falling so um, deeply within a British sphere of influence that um, it had a little option other than to uh, obey at the risk of a, a full military occupation. However, Egyptian and wider Arab sympathies towards the Axis wanting to force out uh, Perfidious Albion, the British who they'd endured, the rest of Arabia had endured since 1919, didn't really register very deeply with Hitler. He wasn't that interested in what Arabs did or said. The fact of the matter was that uh, much is made of the uh, visit of the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem to see Hitler in 1940. It's always a, a feature on uh, various cable TV uh, history shows 
uh, was the, the the Grand Mufti a secret Nazi? Well, the answer is, well, no, he wasn't. The, in essence, the enemy of his enemy was his friend. And um, Hitler met with him, made vague and rather specious promises of arms and assistance, nothing that ever really materialises. Um, but the reality is that Hitler, Hitler did do this from time to time. He did uh, meet with people that he sort of entertained might be possibly useful in the future and talk a big fight to them with very little to, to follow it up. So it's important not to really kind of uh, flam that one up too much. German, the Nazis were not interested in the Arab cause and there's not, I in my mind, a great deal of evidence to suggest that um, Arab uh, anti-Jewish feeling and Nazi anti-Semitism really tied up into any kind of uh, central kind of shared set of ideas. And when later on the uh, Nazis do attempt to meddle in Mesopotamia and in Persia, they, the British stamp on this very quickly and they have no intention of allowing any kind of Arab or Persian nationalism to disrupt um, British oil supplies. Mussolini's uh, abilities to have any kind of diplomatic influence in North Africa and the Middle East are pretty minimal. The people that he's attempting to induce to support the Axis powers are those that he, in places like Libya and Abyssinia, had been um, violently suppressing uh, since the 1930s. With the outbreak of war in 1939, Egypt reversed in essence to being a British colony. The uh, Anglo-Egyptian Treaty, I think of 1882, but you can check me on that one, um, was invoked, uh, a particular clause of it was invoked in order to give the British um, direct control over Egypt uh, where the uh, all facilities and assistances uh, in the King Farouk's power, including the use of ports, aerodromes and means of communication were to be handed over to Great Britain. And the Mediterranean fleet docked at Alexandria. The existence of a growing army in Egypt inevitably led food supplies to be diverted from Egyptian peasants, uh, the Fellahin, uh, the poor landless peasants in Egypt, towards military consumption. Um, it's periodically, wherever you look throughout the Second World War, there are uh, moments of hunger and indeed famine that follow the deployment of military forces into a food-insecure area. British men and officers didn't have this problem, of course, and lived very well. Uh, the uh, Cairo was a centre for entertainment for the troops and for um, uh, weekend pursuits for the officers. But British racism towards the Egyptians uh, meant that there were no white faces in any of the officers' clubs except people who were serving drinks. And the offensive term the British, British soldiers reserved for uh, Egyptian locals was the wog. Uh, American diplomats and journalists who uh, went to see Britain's fighting efforts in the North African theatre often came across this sort of attitude and they came across the gentlemanly amateurism of British officers and much of the credit that Britain had built up for itself in the summer of 1940 with the United States showing that it was ready to fight and ready to fight well and in a disciplined manner and commit to the struggle, thus 
uh, inspiring the American general public and Roosevelt himself and the Houses of Congress to support the British war effort with material and equipment and eventually fighting men. This was undermined by the attitudes that were perceived by American journalists and diplomats in Cairo and Alexandria. Now, there's a lot to say about the North African campaign, um, weeks worth of material really, so we're going to continue on with that um, bit by bit, and we'll have some more on North Africa um, and the, the war there uh, coming for you soon. Anyway, I hope you found this useful. Do check us out on um, Patreon, and if you can give us a good review on iTunes, that'd be great. And also, don't forget, there's the Explaining History YouTube channel where I talk about um, study techniques and all that kind of business. So find us on YouTube and um, subscribe there, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.